0: Hey, parents, Tim Wright here with you once again, along with Dr. Michael Gurian. Michael, welcome to the Wonder Parenting Podcast. Hey, thank you. And we're glad to have all of you listening with us. We're so glad that you're tuning in, and uh, we really appreciate your enthusiasm for the program, and uh, particularly those of you who are connecting with us via questions or via our, our Facebook page. Uh, really love hearing from you. And if you ever have a question for us, you can reach us at wonderofparenting.com, wonderparenting.com. And uh, by the way, we're, we're doing something a little new uh, this, uh, these next several months. Uh, as we've mentioned before, we have a lot of questions, and we want more of them because you helped set the agenda for your program. This is really your program. Um, but because we only, we've been tackling one, maybe one or two a week, it takes us a while to get through. So we've got three, four months' worth of questions uh, ahead of us yet. So what Michael is going to be doing is uh, answering some of these questions briefly on video, just to give you sort of a a taste of what the answers will be coming up in our podcasts. So if you would like to get access to some of these answers earlier, and also access to a lot of other things, you can do that through our website, wonderofparenting.com, and there is a link to Patreon. And Michael, what else will they get for $10 a month?
1: Yeah, well, there's also access there to the online courses. There's access to you can sign up for our blogs, um, uh, and, and there's going to be three video clips, you know, per month. They're going to be about ten. They're usually when I do them, they're around ten minutes long. Sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little less. So I can get into real substance um,
0: in those. So if you are looking to uh, get some answers early uh, and then go deeper with us in the podcast, try it out. And it's just $10 a month. And if you find it's not quite for you, you can get out anytime. And uh, we think it's going to be a great investment as you grow as parents. And also we want to thank, uh, as always, our sponsors, A Place of Hope, uh, the center up there in the Seattle area, doing great work, really helping people work through some of the deep, deep issues of life. And you can find a link to them as well on wonderofparenting.com. So we have another question today. And uh, this is, is going to be a good one, because I think every parent of teenagers has been through this in some way, shape, or form. Maybe the details are a bit different, uh, but I know we went through it with my two kids. And Michael, you probably had some of the same issues at mm. some point with your daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I want to read the question, and um, this is from one of our listeners. What are your uh, suggestions to help a teen who has perfected the art of lying and is curiously trying or buying vapes and drugs. He's a good kid, but the lying's got to stop. We've tried holding him back from getting his license due to bad choices. When we finally gave in, we thought it would help him uh, want to stay true in all that he did. But four days later, after he promised to live uh, and walk in truth, uh, we learned he had purchased vapes and Adderall from a kid at school. My husband found it in his backpack. Uh, we're seeking counseling and input from our pastor, uh, and I'd love any ideas to help our son learn why truth is so much more freeing than lies, which is uh, obviously true. Um, he is uh, uh, Society glamorizes these drugs, and I know how prevalent they are. My son is busy with school, rowing and work. Uh, he's not lying around without things to do, but he's obviously finding time to fit this curiosity in and perfect a trait that we hate, lying thanks for your insight. I'm one determined mom who will fight for her children. And uh, mom, we sure appreciate that. And we get that. We're dads who did the same for our kids. Um, So Michael, um, let's just talk about, generally speaking, what's going on in the mind of a teenager as they move uh, into puberty and then begin that long process to adulthood? And what is it about the teenagers that leads to uh, the pushing of boundaries, perhaps experimentation, lying—what's uh, going on?
1: Yeah, the this this high risk behavior um, in general. I'm going to start generally because specifically, I think it's possible this this child needs to be looked at for addiction. Um, but in general, the the you the brain wants to take risks, and all the a lot of the biochemistry. Uh, higher estrogen in females, higher testosterone in males, and the mix of those uh, compels the brain to take more risks, uh, and it finds ways to take risks. And some some kids lying is a way to take a risk, or and or doing you know trying drugs is a way to take risk, having your first drink, all of those things are, are ways to take risk, and you know the the it's actually good for the brain. I mean, to take these risks because it's it's. Um, it's going out into the world, it's strengthening, the whole self is strengthening, and risk taking builds more resilience and, and so it's a good thing to take risks. Uh, but it, it can also be dangerous. And so the with with a child who lies, in my in my practice I have to say that if, if there's a teenager who's been lying and the parents come in and they say, you know, he or she has been lying for the last six months, for the last year, uh, and and in the same sentence they say, um, vaping, or lying to get Adderall, or you know drinking, I, I'm the first thing I'm saying to them is, OK, let's track this and see whether this child has addiction genetics. Because lying behavior, starting in the teen years, uh, especially associated with the intake of some substance, um, uh, is, can be a really good indicator of addiction genetics. And so those genetics often kick in in early adolescence puberty, moves through the body, the biochemistry shifts, the brain's doing its shifts, and and it triggers those chromosome markers, and then those get triggered. In puberty, through into middle adolescence, certainly by middle adolescence, a lot of these um, folks who we later are going to say are addicts, were beginning to see something starting already there, and they hide it by lying, and they become really, really good at it. So, you know, the information... As I read this one, this I could be totally off base, but in the information we got, that was the first thing that hit me. Uh, especially because he's lying in order to acquire drugs or in order to use drugs. Um, that takes it into this other realm. Because the normal, going back to sort of normal risk taking and and normal behavior, you, you you it's okay to expect some of it, and then it's that's part of what lying behavior, and that's part of why the adults exist. That's part of why we, you know, we take the kid back to good character. We take the kid back to the right expectations and doing right, as she said. Um, that's our job. And 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 we will do that with our kids. And um, uh, if it's not working, if one parent is having difficulty getting a kid to stop lying in terms of that normal development, we've got to rely on the other parent. And then we got to rely on the community to be really getting this kid to stop lying, taking away privileges, um, make, making sure that kid suffers a little bit. When he lies, so that he learns not to lie—that's that, that's bad behavior. But if
0: it's masking addiction, then
1: uh, we should expect it to continue.
0: Do do boys tend to take more dangerous risks than girls?
1: They take—they tend to take more physically dangerous risks. Yep, absolutely. That'll corroborate everyone's experience. Just in general, they—they're more spatial. Their cerebellum is more active which is that doing part of the brain at the bottom of the brain um, they have more spinal fluid in the brain stem which is moving more electricity down into the body um, they're also projecting um, large problems to solve um, and that's actually going on in in this uh, temporal parietal junction which is that problem solving part of the brain and which swells up and then the uh, 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 other parts of the brain like the inferior parietal lobule, you know, parts on the, in the parietal, which is how we are oriented in space and males, uh, a lot of the male brain is about that. How am I moving through space and what, what problem can I solve? If I get at the top of this house with my skateboard, you know, what, what, what what would happen? Is there a way that I could jump off the rim of the house and actually make it into the pool and not the cement? You know, these kind of things. Yeah. So uh, these things are – I mean, in a way, these are good. They're developing the spatials. That kid who does that may well later become an engineer, you know. So, so – males do tend to be to to do more of that stuff. And we tend to like louder sounds. So we do high risk things with chemicals, you know, and explode things and with fireworks and all of this. Yes, we tend to do more of that. And so, of course, higher mortality rate for us, um, uh, more danger. And because we don't have as much development and connectivity to the frontal lobe and to the orbitofrontal and prefrontal, these parts of the brain that do the thinking, that do the executive decision-making. The male brain starts out behind the female in that connectivity in utero, which we've which we mentioned and I've written a lot about in the last six months. The fetal scans in utero, we already see that females have better developed the connectivity between the midbrain where the urge might happen to do something dangerous and then the top of the brain where the brain would say don't do that so males are behind females in that development and um through the teen years already they're behind so they don't they don't um stop themselves from doing dangerous things as much as females stop themselves from doing dangerous things so we do find more males doing dangerous things for sure
0: Now we're going to come back to the the addiction discussion in a moment, but one of the things that the teenagers are going through that we as parents need to recognize is that we've got these teenagers who are who th- think they're adults try to act like adults but they're still really kids and um, so and they and they never quite know what they want to be at the moment <laughs> so you know sometimes they want to be adults and then when they do adult things and get in trouble then they become kids and they lie about it Uh so that general progression just of, of uh, experimenting and, and the boundary uh, pushing, uh, I, I want to just affirm again, some of that is just normal part of growing up.
1: Yeah, I, episodically, I would say episodically lying behavior is. So I mean, what I mean by that is that I think it's normal potentially for any kid to and any brain to sort of try it out. To try out to try out lying behavior, uh, right. especially if they're going to get in trouble, and you you indicated it if they're going to get in trouble, um, to try it out and to try it out with their friends um, to lie for reasons of posturing, you know, like a common one is, "Have you had sex?" Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've had sex. You know, you're posturing, and to lie for for posturing in order to increase your status. Um, these this kind of lying behavior would be episodic, so it would it would not become ingrained, right? In, in the relationship and, and uh and the lying among peers would probably never get tracked by parents and probably is not a it's not a big deal because again it has to do with status, it has to do with with trying to protect oneself relationally so one doesn't feel like a failure. There's all sorts of psych psychological stuff going on when teens lie to each other. And it's not part of anything else. Um, the lying to the parents, uh, yes, some of that is also normal in this episodic way because they don't want to get in trouble or they want to increase their status. Um, uh, they want to show themselves as socially adept, as maturing, like you said, as being more independent. And and so it's within the range of normal for that to happen. Uh, if it becomes ingrained, however, and then it gets associated with a particular thing, then we look at it a different way. Right.
0: I've talked before about uh, my son when he was a, a teenager who was going through depression, and he used alcohol uh, as a way to self-medicate. And um, you know he he didn't he didn't get himself into a lot of trouble in the end, but there were a couple times when he did things he he shouldn't have done. And uh, in our case, he never lied to us. He just never told us until someone else told us. Mm. and then and then he would come clean. Which I appreciated, but he would never rat out a friend. Um, so he would lie for his friends if need be to protect them. But at least um, you know he he would come clean with us. But kids can become addicted for a variety of reasons. Um, and um, what are what are some of the things that parents should look for um, where they might say, okay, I need to be concerned about my son or my daughter that there might be an addiction problem. And what might be some of the reasons that particular teenagers are prone to become addicted to substances like vaping or alcohol or whatever it might be.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, your connection to depression is important because, um, like in my notes, you know, I'm looking at this and I, one of the first things I put down there is, tested for depression, you know, question mark, uh, it doesn't seem like he's depressed because he's, he's, um, you know, school rowing work. So he's working too. He has responsibilities. He's meeting those responsibilities. Uh, but that was on my list to talk about. And for people who, who are listening to this and their child is not, you know, their child is lying, their teen is lying and he's not working. He's not fulfilling responsibilities. He's withdrawing, um, uh, his friend he's withdrawing from friendships he's withdrawing from parents um, and lying there the lying can be something of a mask for the fact that he's depressed but he's lying about what he's accomplishing right he's lying that he's doing his tasks but in fact he's he's depressed so look look for that i think that's really important um, a, a teen can be depressed and lie to cover that up put a mask over that um, but not have the addiction genetics so he can have the potential depression genetics, not the addiction. If he has both, that's a dual diagnosis. Um, He's got both depression uh, and and addiction. So in this case, I don't think this guy, this teen has the depression genetics, um, uh, but I think he may have the addiction genetics. So look for so, so when we're looking at this lying behavior, the parents are asking themselves, is this normal teen rebellion? Is this normal high-risk behavior? Is this normal individuation? Um, is this to protect friends like you just talked about? You know, does it fit uh, – oh, and and is it, um, is it because one or both of the parents are excessively rigid and the kid is trying to escape that? You know, that's another thing teens do when they lie. They have one or both parents are so rigid that the child really can't develop a self. You know, they're so rigid in their rules or whatever it is, they're not really letting this child develop a self. And so so look for that too, because that would be it would be within the range of normal for that kid to start to be lying to his parents. If we look at those and we say as parents, Okay, it's not that. We're not excessively rigid. We're you know, we're good normal parents, let's say. Um uh, this is there is some high risk behavior here, but the lying seems to go beyond that. Um, uh, he's not lying because all his friends are lying. You know, no, it's not that. Um, it's not because he's gotten quote unquote into a bad crowd, um, and he is normally rebellious. He's doing a few things that are high risk, but. You know, he's not lying to be rebellious because he doesn't really need to. We 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 allow him to individuate. So you take those off the list. Then I think um, we're looking at a time frame. Is has he been doing this for six months? Has he been doing this lying behavior for six months? And it's associated with uh, with vaping or with one of these substances. That's when um, you know. Then I'd say get him right away to someone who can assess addiction uh, because it's it's the thing now to rule out or to rule in.
0: What is the role of uh, peer pressure or wanting to socialize with friends? Uh, you know, I, I think back to when we were kids, and I didn't do this, but smoking. You know, if you really wanted to be with the in-group, you had to start smoking, um, or you needed to drink. And if you wanted to hang out with your friends, man, you had to have that cigarette in your hand or a, a bottle of beer in your, your hand. Um, seems like vaping sort of become, uh, you know, the 21st century version of smoking. Um, how, how do you, and you're talking about a little bit, but a lot of times kids will do things just to stay within and be accepted by their friends. So they'll vape even though they know they shouldn't, or they'll drink even though they know they shouldn't. Um, how, how do we sort of know the difference between they're doing it for peer pressure and to be accepted versus they're doing it now because they're addicted to it?
1: yeah yeah that's why I think we have to look at this with a time frame because episodically it it's quite normal and you're you're right in our generation we would take a drink before we were supposed to with our friends uh we would um and it would become it would become a rite of passage to figure out how right. to get someone to get us booze you know, and we'd get the older sibling generally to do it uh and and we would smoke under the bleachers was our thing uh and we would just find cigarette butts and and smoke them someone else had tossed them out right toss them under the bleacher and we what are we 12 or 13 we would go you know go oh let's smoke that and it was always a, pack, a little pack of our friends you know to be with our friends so so that yeah that's within the range of, of normal i think and especially in this day and age where it's also available that's within the range of normal so that's why a time frame is important we we have to say okay has it been six months has it been a year you know if we're getting into those time frames then i think it goes beyond the the normal stuff and and <clears throat> and that's why i did mention friends you know we do have to assess is is he quote unquote in with a bad crowd if if we assess oh this is really you know not addiction or anything he's in with the wrong crowd and to be in with that crowd he's having to vape and steal adderall and that kind of thing or purchase adderall uh okay then then you know we could say okay it's about this crowd how do we get him out of this crowd right uh, but if it's not that crowd, if it's not that he's depressed, if it's not these other things, then six months I would say is a good timeline to see if this, if we've had the lying behavior with the drugs going on straight for six months, you know, then then I think we at least have to rule out addiction.
0: Now the, she indicated that they're doing some really proactive things, um, and uh, let, let's start. And I know you will affirm this. Uh, they're, they're getting counseling. Uh, for their son, uh, they're also seeking the advice of their pastor mm-hmm. and um, and I, I can't speak for every pastor. I can tell you that this pastor, me, uh, when people come to me for those kinds of questions, uh, I serve as a spiritual director. And then say, you need to go see so-and-so, because uh, that's way out of my league in terms of behavior therapy and so on and so forth. So that they're doing both is really a good sign to me that they're, they're getting at it. And then they also seem to try to put in some boundaries. Um, so just talk a little bit about—we've uh, we, affirmed the need for counseling many, many times— uh, what role can boundaries play in our kids, and when are they helpful? And when do we when do we need to sort of check ourselves to say now they're becoming excessive or too rigid?
2: It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Yeah,
1: if if I, I think every year of a child's life, and I and Gail and I certainly did this every year of a child's development, we should be reassessing um, the boundaries we set, the responsibilities we give, the privileges we give. Um, so you know, we started this with our kids uh, as they were as they were hitting puberty. We could see puberty was hitting, and we would we would have conversations with them and with each other about okay, we're going to give them these two new responsibilities. And, and uh, if, as they fulfill those responsibilities, you know, taking out the garbage, chores in general, um, they're going to get these two new privileges. You know, so with one new responsibility comes a new privilege. And um, uh, they've proven that they're trustworthy. So we're not going to be forcing boundaries as much. You know, we're going to now let them push a little, push a little more, push a little more. Uh, they'll always know where the line is we promulgated, you know, good behavior on our refrigerator. So they always knew, you know, okay, this is what crosses a line. But but uh, they got a little more latitude, a little more latitude, so they could develop a self. And I think every year, it's good to reassess those and set new. And sometimes you have to do it spontaneously, because you can just tell the child is growing up so well. And you assess and set Set boundaries that fit for a fifteen-year-old, not a thirteen-year-old. You know, um, have interactions that fit for the the fifteen-year-old. I, I really like I, I like that they tried this thing with the license because uh, if he's working, I'm thinking he must be at least sixteen, and um, uh, and you know they said, well, we're going to hold off on you having that privilege, your license, until you change this behavior, and and in fact, one of the one of the things that that triggered me to wonder about something deeper like addiction is that that kids really tend to want their license you know mm-hmm. so they they want that independence they want to be able to drive so that i find that very interesting and, if, and yes. to, to go back to the counseling if i were the counselor and i'm so glad they're getting counseling i'm so glad they're talking to the pastor those people will know this this boy and this family right you and i don't know this boy and this family and even right. if we talk to this family for an hour we're still not going to know this family the way that the counselor on site is going to, and that the pastor who knows the family will. So they're going to go to those people, get help from those people, um, and that's one of the first things I would bring up to the counselor: is doesn't this seem interesting that he he didn't want his license so badly that he would stop this lying? You know, mm-hmm. um, and I, and I think that's that's a nice wedge to work with in counseling.
0: One of the issues that comes from all of this is the parent guilt. And uh, we we've done a podcast on that already uh, recently, but uh, I've we felt it ourselves when we discovered that our son was having issues, particularly with alcohol, and then depression. And why didn't we see it sooner? What could we have done better? And of course, he turned out great. He's fine. Um, but you feel guilty, and I I've, especially parents whose whose children end up really in trouble. They become addicted. Uh, and, and maybe you know for years live in that, that spiral of in and out of addictions and in and out of recovery, and you, you just feel so guilty as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that you would say to those guilt-ridden parents um, to give them some hope, maybe, or just to say, here are some things to manage uh, the addiction of your child?
1: Yeah. Let me look at that guilt at sort of two levels. If, if a, ch- um, before going to the addiction, uh, guilt, that, that first one of the, just the basic guilt of my, my child is doing these bad things. I've worked so hard, like in this case, lying. I've worked so hard. It's not working. My child's, you know, this is not good. I, I feel guilty. Um, I, uh, as we did note, all of us feel guilty as parents. There's no way to escape feeling guilty as a parent, even if you think you had the perfect child. They're still going to feel guilty about stuff. And I think to some extent, the guilt is built into the brain in a good way so that then we we are always assessing what we could have done better so that when we have grandkids, I think so that we can be a better grandparent. You know, we won't repeat the quote unquote mistakes we think we made with our kids. So it's, it's probably a good thing as long as it doesn't become a debilitating shame, you know, shame in, in inside the self that debilitates our relationships, I think a certain level of guilt is probably built in and okay. Um, in this particular case, I, I, with these parents, I would caution these parents uh, about feeling too guilty uh, with the caveat that if one of the parents lies a lot, right, and if this lying is potentially, to some extent, modeled after a parent who lies a lot, that parent, I think, needs to feel feel the, the guilt to change the self, you know, to stop that parent's lying behavior so that we can help this child stop his lying behavior, right? That, that would be the only kind of surgical area of guilt beyond the normal guilt parents will feel that I, I would feel as a parent. Now, we've had no indication that either of these parents is involved in lying a lot. So we've had no indication here that this child has modeled the lying off of a parent. Uh, but I wanted to put that in there, that, that that would be a place to, like, use the guilt to immediately change. Um, but then in terms of addiction, I beg parents not to feel guilt about this, though they will, not to feel guilt and to feel, but but to feel the relief of doing everything they can to help, to help the addict, doing everything they can, and including learning, including, like, going to Al-Anon, you know, religiously, going to Al-Anon or something like that, to learn the 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 fate, uh, maybe almost tragic fate, but the fate of parents of addicts or people married to addicts is that um, they have to learn the lesson of of powerlessness, of having no control, because the locus of control is all with the addict. Um, it's not with us, right? It's with the, the addicted spouse, if we have a spouse, or the addicted child, or the addicted parent, the locus of control is with them. They are in control, and we are powerless. And what, all we can do is try to help them take control. Um, and which, at a certain point, may mean we have to stop enabling someone. Now, this, this young guy, you know, that's a later stage. This young guy, we're going to figure out if he is an addict, and then there's going to be all sorts of stages these parents will go through with him and him with himself. But the fate of people who are relating to addicts is to, is to grapple with powerlessness and lack of control. And um, if it turns out that this young man is becoming an addict or is an addict, then that's what the parents will need to learn. And I hope they can uh, – they'll go through the stages of guilt but I hope that they can keep that one in mind, because they didn't cause this, right? This is genetic, if the child is an addict.
0: Right. Now, we're not a faith-based program, uh, but you and I are both come from faith traditions, and um, one of the striking things about uh, a story like this is that uh, being faith-based families— does not guarantee that we aren't going to go through these kinds of challenges, and um, but for those who are faith based, one of the added assets they have that you like to use is you've got a community of people there, uh, so that you don't have to go through this alone. And it sounds like they're taking advantage of that with their pastor.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and 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 any even if people are not faith based, AA itself, which is probably has the best success record with yep. addicts, it it has the higher power. So yep. I think all of us. Uh, If our fate is to understand what powerlessness feels like and what lack of control feels like, those of us helping an addict, and then the addict himself has to and herself has to learn it, right? They have to go through where they give it over to a higher power. And uh, you and I, obviously, I'm Jewish, you're Christian, we're very comfortable using the word God. For those people who aren't, though, uh, higher power is is still good, and it's built into this whole addiction framework.
0: I have a hunch— that in the future we'll be talking more about uh, teenagers and these kinds of issues and even addictions. But this was a great question to get us started. We thank you so much uh, for sending that in. And a reminder that you can send your questions to us at wonderofparenting.com, wonderofparenting.com. You can also get access to uh, Michael, for $10 a month through Patreon, and he's going to get at some of these questions a little earlier than we can with our podcast. And uh, next week, we've got another great question. We're going to even try to see if we can get two in. We'll see. Uh, We don't want to shortchange the questions, but we do want to try to get as many questions in as we can these next few weeks and months. So we appreciate your listening. Michael, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Tim. Thanks, everyone. And we thank you all for listening.
2: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.